You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And uh, we are just a couple weeks away from a presidential election. Boy, oh boy, we live in interesting times, don't we? Uh, we've got a global pandemic, a recession, a divided country. This country is more divided than I have ever seen in my life. Um, all of that heading into an election year. And, uh, you know, from the perspective of what we talk about on this show, which is not politics, it's the economy. Anyone who says they know for sure which way the economy is headed in the next six months, well, they're kind of lying to you. I'm not saying that, you know, that uh, they may not be right. It's just it's it's still kind of a, a weird, weird place, right? I mean, uh, how long is it going to take? Did any of us really think it was we were going to be wearing masks and, you know, this long when this first thing started? And, you know, now we're, we're hopefully getting close to a uh, vaccination, but... Gosh, how long is it going to take uh, for that to really create a herd immunity? How many people are going to take it? How many people are not? So what can we do about all this uncertainty, um, you know, about the future? From an economic standpoint, well, that's what being a sophisticated investor is all about, right? I mean, you kind of have to know a little bit of macroeconomics. You have to understand what's happening around you in the world. Uh, what's affecting prices in not only various asset classes, but sub-asset classes. So, for example, whereas, you know, a lot of commercial real estate around the country has just gotten absolutely hammered, we've actually been very fortunate that our accredited investor club, which you can sign up for, by the way, at, at uh, wealthformula.com, we are very heavy on working class apartment buildings and self-storage, uh, specifically in rapidly growing landlord-friendly states. In fact, in those cities, we are seeing a further compression of cap rates because of increased demand. Um, and that increased demand is coming from big money, people who have not bought in, for example, in Arizona before because they were buying in only in, in New York and California. Well, now they want to buy in Texas. They want to buy in Arizona. So there's all sorts of new money coming in. And then on top of that, low interest rates. One comment about the interest rates too. I've heard a lot of people say, well, who would have who would have ever guessed that interest rates would have been lower, right? A year ago. And it's funny because I can think of one guy who did. It wasn't me, by the way. But if you remember, if you came to one of our Wealth Formula events, uh, one of the principles of Western Wealth Capital, David Steele did an entire talk, and the thesis essentially was our interest rates are you know, higher than anywhere else in the world, and they're only going to get lower. So he's the only guy, I think, who really predicted it, and I got to give my hands off to Dave there. He really uh, he got that right. Uh, that's uh, Western Wealth Capital, which is one of our investor club partners. Anyway, um, you know, that said, you know, regardless of some uh, potential short-term volatility in these areas that we're in, I mean, we don't know. I mean, there could still be some increases uh, 
uh, and vacancy, uh, you know, and, and rent collection issues and stuff like that in the short term. I mean, we are extremely well capitalized. So the good news is I am extremely bullish uh, as ever on our investor club thesis of focusing on what I would call essential real estate. But to be clear, I will tell you again, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be disingenuous and suggest that real estate in general is not correlated with other markets as a whole. It is, and it is affected by what else happens uh, in, in other markets. But the thing is that usually when you identify something that isn't correlated, you know, something that's really considered uncorrelated to the economy, the problem there is you usually don't make a whole lot of money, right? It's usually a very uninteresting pro forma in addition to being uncorrelated. So, um, however, I will say that there has been one, you know, big in my investments, personal investments, there has been one major exception to this rule, which really has uh, performed extremely well throughout, you know, good times and bad and, and really uh, through COVID. In the last three or four years, I've been investing in various uh, ventures in the automatic teller machine space. Yes, you heard me, automatic teller machines, ATMs. Okay, so you're thinking, who uses cash these days anyway, right? Who's who's walking around with a wad of cash? Or more broadly, why in the world would I invest in ATM machines, Buck? Well, these are good questions, and well, I, I can't uh, say that I didn't say the same thing or think the same thing when I first heard about uh, these kinds of uh, investments. And well, uh, it's, you know, it's the devil's in the details. Um, you know for a fact by this point, at least in theory, that I am not reckless when it comes to investing. I am advocating for boring, boring. I like boring, right? More boring, the better. And uh, especially when that comes to your money in investor club, you know, with our credit investor group, we're going to be very careful with that stuff. Uh, even if I go decide to do something crazy on my own, I'd rather not bring you along with me at this point. Um, so believe me, investing in ATM machines uh, actually does make a lot of sense right now. And I want you to listen to this podcast to explain why, because if done properly, ATM investments can be highly profitable, which is what we like. But you can also write off your investment against any passive income you earn with current bonus depreciation provisions in the tax code. In other words, if you have a surgery center making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and you invest a couple hundred thousand dollars into an ATM fund the way we have it, guess what? We just wiped away your tax liability from that passive income from your surgery center. And then, of course, again, ATM machines are uncorrelated to the economy. Put that together with an institutional level operator, uh, institutional level portfolio. And frankly, there is not uh, that much there not to like, in my humble opinion. So anyway, to tell us more about this opportunity and what this is all about, I've invited our new investor club partner, Daryl Heller. Now, Daryl's been in, uh, Daryl has been around for a long time. He's a venture capitalist. He's an entrepreneur and he's the founder of Heller Capital. And he's uh, one of our new new partners at 
the uh, accredited investor club. But when we come back, Daryl is going to tell us all about this entire concept of investing in ATM machines. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast is Daryl Heller. Daryl is a venture capitalist and uh, an entrepreneur and the founder of, of Heller Capital, uh, which he is also uh, the CEO of. And Heller Capital and Daryl are actually uh, the newest uh, uh, partners of the Wealth Formula Investor Group with some exciting stuff going on over there. So with that, Daryl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Buck. Pleasure to be part of the show today. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, so just for those who uh, don't uh, have an idea of, of exactly kind of where, what exactly you're doing there over at Heller Capital, maybe you can kind of tell us about what that is and then ultimately specifically, you know, why uh, you got into the business that we're going to talk about today, which is the business of automatic teller machines or ATM machines. No, I'd be glad to. So my my history is telecom technology entrepreneur. Started my first company when I was in college. Ended up being fortunate enough to take a few to financial events, and then in about the 2012 time period, I moved into private equity. And Heller Capital Group owns anywhere from 12 to 15 operating companies, three to five private placements at any given time, and you know has a market cap of around 500 million right now. In terms of ATMs, uh, that's um, a bit more interesting, in 2011, um, I ended up having an opportunity to invest into this space, and I did a significant amount of diligence and found out there's very thick operating margins. And initially saw it and still do today as a real estate play where we could capture um, a lot of real estate and end up monetizing that real estate with things beyond ATM. So mm -hmm. but we're sitting here you know, many years later, nine, going on 10 years later, and having the same success and even higher success as we'll talk about today, I'm sure, than we had back in 2011. So, you know, that's how I got into the space. I have about 15 million in the ATM space. I'm a firm believer in the old Microsoft adage that you your own dog food first. And accordingly, you know, I've done just that. Yeah. And we're talking about 15 million, your own money in there. So how do you make money from owning ATMs? I mean, you know, uh, give us a sense of, you know, what, uh, you know, how does, of course, when you go to a chase and you already have a chase, uh, account, you don't pay any money, but a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, the, the, the surcharges, right? How does that work? And, you know, what kind of volumes, uh, do you typically see in an ATM machine in a given day? Yeah. So we are, our ATMs are in what I would call a very defined demographic, that is strategic by nature. For example, mall groups, we deselected about five, six years ago. Um, fortunately, we did with COVID as they got crushed there. We saw online retail um, really impacting it. So our demographic is in this kind of unbanked and underbanked. That's a high percentage of it. I'm sure we'll speak more to that later. But in terms of how we make money within that demographic, um, essentially an operator or a management company charges a user, you know, anywhere from 250 to 350 for each transaction um, that they make. Plus on top of that, the operator makes around 25 cents for something called interchange. So their, their revenue stream would be surcharge plus interchange. And then the rule of thumb, this varies obviously, Buck, but the rule of thumb is 20 to 30% could go to the retail location. 25 to 30% goes into the, the WF Velocity 
fund um, that we're talking about today. And then generally in that, you know, 40 to 55% is retained by the management company to, to operate the ATM. And then the management company aggregates ATMs into large pools, blends the returns for WF Velocity Fund, it removes, removes seasonality, the demographic issues, all those other volatilities. And then we, as the owner of the ATM, get paid a percentage of that surcharge generated at the ATM. So it's pretty straightforward. So that's how it works. In terms yeah. of, you, you ask volume levels, um, yeah. if you're going to use a rule of thumb for the type of demographics we're in, we're generally around that, in that 500 range. We get paid on slightly less than that. The management company sure. keeps an insurance buffer in there for themselves, which is, you know, how we came through COVID completely um, unimpacted. Right. Uh, but that's the, that's essentially, you know, the revenue model and how, how you make money with an ATM. So, so one of my, uh, one of the members of an investor club emailed me when uh, we started, we, we had this offering, the WF Velocity Fund, uh, which is open, of course, only to accredited investors. And he says, uh, he says, the first question I had in my mind is, who uses cash? Um, no, I know I don't use it much, and you probably don't either. Um, however, statistically, year over year, the cash numbers are actually going up. Isn't that correct? So who's using cash? Yeah, that is correct. The monetary system's growing both in the U.S. There's some interesting stats in the U.S. and certainly at a worldwide level. Um, but yeah, I asked myself the same question back in, in 2011. And I remember reading an article from 1999 in the Wall Street talking about cash will be dead in a few years. Well, you know, we're now 20 plus years beyond 1999 and cash is actually growing. And we now have empirical data for the last nine years to actually show that it's incrementing up, not decremating down. And, and it really comes down to, again, that demographic issue. Buck, you and I and many of the, the people in this uh, listening to the show today are not using their ATM card much. However, uh, the focus is those that lack credit, thus credit card access. So again, that unbanked and underbanked, which is a large demographic already and a growing demographic. So it's those who lack credit and thus credit card access, you know, credit challenges, those who use prepaid cards, um, which kind of plays into the EBT side. Our, our government welfare system is now running a prepaid. It has been for many years and will continue to be. So that's a big focus of our demographic is people using their EPT card, EBT card. And it's essentially their bank. An ATM is seen as their bank, given a lot of them don't have bank accounts. Um, they're working on prepaid cards. And then, you know, ATMs get used for transferring funds and other functions in lieu of online banking, which kind of ties into, you know, there's a demographic of people out there that just distrust credit cards, given all the credit card breaches at some of the big retailers over the past few years, and just prefer to do their online on a machine versus, you know, through, um, you know, their version of how it would run on the internet side. So, and then, you know, there's just a segment of people when it's growing that simply prefer cash that yeah. maybe don't fit into the unbanked and underbanked, but they prefer cash. I mean, for example, 10 years ago, you know, all employers would give you a paycheck and you'd go to the bank and cash your paycheck and take a couple hundred dollars out. Now it's all ACH or wired. So, you know, at some point you have to go get cash and all banks are seeing, you know, traffic counts going way down, they're closing branches and they're starting to see ATMs as a vault on the street. And many of the ATMs that are in this portfolio yeah. will be branded by the big banks as well. So yeah. you, you're, you know, Buck, you already own some ATNs. Some of those ATNs has some bank brands on it. So if you walk up to what a user does, they may think it is XYZ Bank, um, when in reality it's your ATM and they're just paying to brand on it. And that's the banks are seeing, let's put vaults out there so 
access to cash is easier and that's changing the demographic game a bit more where there's a broader demographic people using it. I do use an ATM more than I used to. I'm not sure if that's because I'm an investor in it and <laughs> yeah. have an affinity towards it now, or if it's just a real change in my behavior, I'm not sure. Yeah. When it's interesting, you know, you make a very interesting point. I think a lot of people don't think about this, but you know, there is this overall shift, um, you know, in, in, in the workforce of increased automate, uh, you know, sort of automation and, you know, replacing, replacing individuals with technology and ATM machines have a, a function beyond, you know, getting your cash out. Right. So, I mean, surcharges for that are, uh, part of that is just, you know, banking period. Right. So you're, you're just, you have banking transactions going on there. The other thing that I think it, for me, at least, um, you know, and I've just my own noticing what people talk about in this space versus what's reality is, is that, um, you know, the idea that about cash and its use going away, I mean, first of all, as you know, uh, it's going up as we talked about. Second of all, uh, there's no legislation. There's no legislation on this matter in the U.S. And this is a generational change. It's not like, oh gosh, every, every you know, the next day we're going to wake up and there's going to be no cash. The reality is that people like cash. I think there's some statistic about you know, well over 70, 80% of people uh, oppose the idea of going to a cashless society. And the other interesting thing is that in areas like the Bay Area where various merchants have tried to, you know, stop taking cash, they've actually come under fire as being quote unquote racist because they're not open to people who primarily function in cash. Some comments on that, Daryl? Yeah, no, really interesting uh, subject matter there. I mean, I, I put it kind of under cash relevance because it's a question I get asked a lot and a questions, question that I and we still do a lot of diligence on. So, you know, we talked about this, you know, demographic issue that uses EBT, et cetera. But then you get into just, and, and that's not changing, that's actually growing. So our demographic is growing, not, not decreasing. But then you get into things like you spoke about. There is no pending regulation out there. There is no regulatory risk um, on the horizon relative to cash. In fact, there's a, a bill out there called Payment Choice Act of 2019. I think it's bill 2850. It has bipartisan support. Uh, I think it has 38 co-sponsors from both sides of the aisle. And that kind of plays into what you saw occurring. You referenced other countries, some large retailers. You got countries like India, Sweden, Spain, China. There's quite a few others that made a run at becoming cashless and all reversed it right. um, in, in pretty quick order. Then you got some large retailers. I mean, um, Walmart started some pretty big pilots, discontinued the pilot quickly, McDonald's, United Airlines. I mean, you can go on and on. Um, and, you know, those have all been reversed. And it is a discrimination issue. Um, There's some local governments, state governments that have already put regulation out there on the discriminatory side. Um, but again, there's some federal things being worked on. And then if you just go and, and look at the U.S., I mean, this is, is an interesting fact that I, I read recently. And in the U.S., as of 9.30, so, you know, less than a month ago, there was $2 trillion in circulation of cash in the U.S., um, and that's a 22% increase from January of this year. So you yeah. can sit here and say, did COVID impact it negatively? Um, you know, how did how does this epidemic, yeah. how does this pandemic that we're still in today 
impact cash. Well, it's certainly not hurting it. And well, one of the things it's increasing it and this perception of the virus um, contained in bills and stuff, most of those myths have been dispelled by now. One of the things you mentioned, which I thought was uh, fascinating and I didn't realize this is a lot of the government programs are prepaid, uh, you know, ATM cards, right? I mean, they're basically debit cards and people can go in and the way they're getting their cash is through those cards. So that's, that probably explains why you've got so much cash coming in. Anyway, um, so I've, you know, I've invested in ATMs um, uh, myself over the past three, four years through, you know, your various funds. And um, what's striking to me, and, and, I, and I did it, uh, admittedly, you know, for me, a lot of it was a tax play and there was, you know, attractive returns along with the tax play and all that stuff. And, but over the last three, four years, I've noticed a couple of things. First, um, the monthly payments were never missed. And even during COVID-19, again, to me, I was like, oh, COVID-19 is happening. How is that, you know, how, how, who's going to get cash? But to your point, I mean, if a large segment of the population relies on cash to just buy the basics, uh, you know, everyone's st- being forced to stay at home, but they still have to eat, right? I mean, isn't that basically, is that what happened? I mean, why, why was this, uh, what, what made it so strong, um, you know, other than the, you know, the prepaid debit cards, uh, is that pretty much the main driver you think, or? Yeah, so I think it's a couple fold, but, you know, again, if you go to the prepaid um, debit cards, that becomes a demographic issue. And, you know, that on-banked, under-banked, in fact, many of those um, came out of this pandemic with a whole lot of money, more than they were typically getting, as you mm-hmm. well know. So that yeah. played into it. There's also this perception when you go into a pandemic, some people want to hoard cash. We saw massive runs in large, oh, yeah. some large yeah. cities, which is unbelievable amount of cash shoots out. Some of our ATMs up to, some of our ATMs were up two to three X. Um, from what they were a year over um, during that time period. So, but uh, when you really look at COVID and you say, how did we weather that storm, Buck? It, it was really the demographic issue. It was these central locations. Did we have a few ATMs shut down? Of course we did. But we had many ATMs that were performing at the level they had previous um, to COVID and many that were performing at levels well beyond what they had performed. So, you know, for example, our, when you take the, most impactful four week period of time, we were down around 12%. Now you read some industry reports, which include bank ATMs, retail ATMs, and mall ATMs that were down 30%, a lot of operators. But again, because of this very narrow band, very acute focus relative to demographic, um, you know, that was worst case down about 10% in our, or 12%, excuse me, in our segments. And then that just started to come back. I will say in July, year over year, same store, same ATM, we were up, literally yeah. up from 2019. August the same. I've yet to see September numbers, but I'll be shocked if that's not the case. So, um, yeah, we it, it really comes down to where our ATMs were placed. We did not have many in non-essential locations, and they're in C stores, and they're in places where that demographic was actually getting having more cash than they had prior to COVID yeah. because of all the government, you know, supplemental or subsidy programs that are out there. And then I think there was a higher percent of people that were using ATMs that wanted to pull cash out that they made a bank was closed. They couldn't go into a bank. So they had to go to their bank on the street or bank in a convenience store. So there's a lot of really interesting elements when you start to kind of 
pull the the layers back on that and yeah. look under it, but that would be a few of them. And you know, it's the reason September, August, and I think, excuse me, July, August, and I think September will be year over same store um, up from 2019. So, with all that being said, is it fair to say? And do we have statistics to say that that investments in ATMs, you know, at least in terms of the the way we're we're looking at it through this fund model, is uncorrelated to the economy at, at, at large. Yes, I would agree with that assessment. I'd suggest cash stays, you know, relative consistent, regardless of bull or bear market for all the, you know, aforementioned reasons we spoke about. Again, yep. you study the demographic, you're just not going to see the volatility in those EBT users. In fact, you're going to see an increase to it, irrespective of bull or bear market. So our, our investor club and your group have partnered that, partnered now uh, and offer what uh, we are calling the WF. And that's, uh, of course, it's wealth formula, WF Velocity Fund. Can you talk about how the fund works um, uh, in general? It is, I should point out that it is a Reg D 506C offering, which means it's open to accredited investors only. And that's why we can actually talk about it uh, on this podcast specifically. Uh, But maybe you could you know, maybe you could kind of give people an idea of how that fund works and, you know, um, maybe get into the numbers a little bit, et cetera. Absolutely. So there's an allocation of, of ATMs that have been allocated to this fund as an opportunity. It's not an obligation, but it's an allocation um, that we've worked um, with WF Velocity Fund on. So essentially invested investor club members would make an investment the unit is 104,000. You can also purchase a half unit, which is 52,000. And from that, the ATMs are purchased. They're then placed by the operator or what we would call the management company and these target demographics that we've defined here today. And then the ATM is operated by that management company, that operator. So they're, they're certified ISO. They fall under a lot of regulatory accountability. They have a sponsor bank. They have annual audits. They have random audits just to give you some security and transparency on that side, all ATMs or EMV, ADA, PCI compliant. And then they, essentially they're contracting, some of it is in-source, some of it's outsourced. They're contracting with individuals to essentially operate that ATM. So you have processors, the same processors your bank uses like Fiserv and Align, are the ones processing these transactions. They have bailment contracts. Um, they have two large national Wall Street banks that's providing the cash into the vaults of the ATMs. They hire um, Armored, which is secure transport, your Loomis, Brinks, Garda trucks that you see driving around as we're on the highway these days. And then they have um, maintenance companies. Some of it is in-source. They have some of their own maintenance teams, but they have maintenance companies that will roll a truck to an ATM. A lot of it is the reboots and a lot of the maintenance and diagnostics are done remotely these days, but there's still you know requirements to roll trucks at times. And then they insure the cash and the ATM. So if someone steals that ATM or goes in and puts a sledgehammer to it, whatever it may be. Um, you know, we take on none of that risk. And as noted earlier, we then get paid a percentage of that surcharge in these blended pools to, to remove our volatility and, you know, makes for a very nice investment on our side. Yeah. So, so basically the idea here, um, is that you buy a, a unit, which is, you know, or a half unit, um, so that's either six or three ATM machines and you own, you own those, right. And then, but really what you're doing is you're taking 
you're you're signing a venture agreement, and then um, in order to sort of really mitigate that risk of of volatility, the the income produced um, by those machines goes into a larger pool, you know, thousands of machines, to really flatten out and stabilize the return, which is then returned uh, as a fixed return uh, over the course of seven years in monthly dividends. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what those returns l- look like uh, in this? Uh, and this is this is subject to change, but we're talking as a uh, of October um, and almost November here of 2020. Yes, I'm glad to. And just a bit on the pooled or blended um, yeah. funds or, or pools of ATMs. In the early days, it was variable. And the challenge we had is we had investor A and investor B sitting in the same country club when one individual was, Sally was getting a lot more than John, just by virtue of where it was placed. So to to kind of level all that out, to take the seasonality out, to take the demographic issue out, they pull thousands of ATMs, which not only manages risk for all of us, but it flattens that, um, you know, that ATM yield out and doesn't create those those volatilities up and down on a monthly basis. But yeah, to the returns, I'll use that as the segue. Um, you know, I'll put three metrics out there. You have your, you know, your cash on cash and the cash on cash returns here are very high. Um, but again, you're making an investment in a piece of equipment, an asset that depreciates it down. So, you know, don't let this be misleading to you. Um, I say that from a conservative lens, but the real cash on cash is, you know, 25.2%. And then the cash on cash, when you factor in depreciation, which I'm sure we're talking about today, actually goes up to 33.2 if you factor it in at 40%. So strong cash on cash, but at the end of that seven-year contract, your ATM for something, but very little because it's a fatigue depreciated asset. Um, rate of return, which, you know, I like to look at, that's 11.3%. Rate of return with depreciation is 17.0%. Um, and then you know, IRR, which is what many people look at in this space, um, without depreciation would be 16.5%. And with depreciation, you know, it's up slightly over 30%. Yeah. So the internal rate of return, this is something we don't talk a lot about, frankly, in, in the real estate world, uh, because we're, we, we tend to use different language. We often talk about annualized returns, but one of the values here in using this internal rate of return number, um, is that it takes into consideration the time value of money. And so for a fixed, for something that's a depreciating asset over seven years, that's a very, very important number. And a lot of it just is about how quickly you're getting your money back with consideration of what else you could do with the money, in other words. I mean, that's sort of like the high-level high explanation of internal rate of return. The um, now, Daryl was talking specifically about with or without depreciation. Um, you know, we talk a lot on this show about tax implications of investing and tax-efficient investing. And so, basically, this is a piece of equipment, and and it can be um, it's depreciated. So it's not just because of a current law, but any equipment. If I buy medical equipment, it can be de- buy through my business it can be depreciated over five years, uh, down to zero. And similarly, uh, with, um, uh, just like, uh, depreciation in other areas that we talk about right now, there is the idea of bonus depreciation with the Trump law or Trump tax changes, at least temporarily, at least for the time being, 
you can take all of that depreciation up front. So if you had a hundred and four thousand um, dollar investment uh, and you have passive income to offset, uh, that's important. It's a passive income. Then you can you you can offset that income uh, with the uh, you know passive deduction you're getting from these machines. So that is actually a huge huge opportunity. And honestly, it's one of the main reasons that I've I've done this. I mean, obviously the returns are very attractive, uh, but you throw in the additional element of an internal rate of return um, exceeding thirty. You put that together with, um, you know, being able to write the whole thing off during bonus depreciation time. Um, really, it's like getting your money back in less than three years. And to me, that's a really uh, interesting proposition. So, Daryl, do you have anything to add on the tax side? Because I know it. I mean, we we we. It's funny because I don't. When we did this presentation, when we did it originally as a webinar, I think you were probably taken aback by the sure volume of tax questions, <laughs> but my, my group is completely obsessed with the concept of tax, uh, tax efficient investing. Yeah, clearly I have a very sophisticated um, group of investors. Uh, you know, personally, Buck, I, I think this is one of the more significant opportunities that our current tax, you know, code law has. And I don't think it'll be here long-term. I mean, depending on administration changes um, in the next, what, couple, two weeks? Well, it would start in January, but decisions made in the next couple weeks. I do think this is an opportunity when you get into 2021 that at a minimum will be reduced if not completely removed. But yeah, it, it's powerful because if, if you think about it, you can depreciate 100% of your investment in that first year. So, you know, whatever, take round numbers, take five units, take 520K, and let's just say you're you're taking bonus depreciation and you're in that 40% tax bracket all in. So essentially, that's 208,000 right. um, off of that. You, that essentially um, is depreciated or coming off. So your net um, basis, if you will, is 312k, but you're going to get the return of a 520k investment. Now that does presume that you have some other passive income as was noted by you. You're naturally going to have passive income generated that first year. So you have that against it. So you won't need the full 208. Um, But you know, you're going to have some other, you need some other passive investment to to kind of run that financial model hypothetical that I just put out there, but it's powerful. Even if it's at a carry forward, even if you're just shielding, you know, you know, all your income that first year, because you can get in and say your entire income, your first year, two years, is shielded through bonus depreciation. So it, it is an, an, a very impactful tool yeah. and one that, you know, I've utilized for years and am hopeful uh, that it does not go away. But yeah. I, I think we may be looking at a three, four, five, six month run on this. I agree with that on the bonus depreciation side. And, you know, Tom Wheelwright, uh, my CPA, was on the show a couple, uh, couple weeks ago and we talked about this issue of bonus depreciation. It's one of the things that he, um, whereas a number of the things in the real estate space, he does not believe are going are, are really going to go away. He doesn't think 1031s are going to go away, et cetera. He, bonus is going to go away. And the question of when it goes away is really when the legislation comes up um, for it to go away. Because once it gets ratified, which it almost certainly will, uh, then it, it, it reverts back to the date that that legislation was put forward. So it, it seriously could be, you know, 
sometime uh, relatively early next year. That's certainly a possibility. So what I like about the bonus depreciation from my, I'll just take one, uh, one thing that I really like about it, because you don't have to do this over bonus depreciation, but you can. And, uh, and to me, it's attractive because say you um, don't use that depreciation uh, because you don't have enough passive income, well, you just carry it forward and try to figure out a way to create more passive income. We talked about that on the Tom show. Those of you who've got surgery centers, they've got infusion centers, you've got dialysis centers, this is all passive income. And if your CPAs are not calling it passive income, then you should seriously consult another CPA because you have an opportunity here potentially to wipe out like all the, the, the taxes that you would pay on that. Again, I'm not a CPA, but this is stuff that we've talked about uh, a fair amount, and I feel fairly confident in in telling you that you know this is this stuff works. Um, Daryl, one one more question for you, and because you know people initially, I think sometimes they also hear like oh, it's an ATM play, and it sounds a little, you know, even for the alternative people, it sounds a little alternative, right? Um, but this is not a mom and pop show. Talk a little bit about the partners here, because this is a, you know, this is, this is a top five operator. This is, you know, we've got some of the, some people on the board here who are, you know, this this is high level stuff. This is not like a rookie crew. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I'd be glad to. So yeah, our, our operator, our management company um, is top five in in the U S they've got close to 10,000 ATMs. They've got, you know, up times of 98.5%. So they are a best in class operator out there. And this space, you know, you can kind of break it down into, to use your phraseology, the, the mom and pop, and then the more larger institutional players. So we're working with a bona fide, growing, very successful, profitable, profitable, you know, operator management company, which gives us a lot of security. And beyond that, what really helps, and I noted this earlier, at risk of being redundant, I'll bring it up again, and that is, they have a sponsored bank and, you know, to, to do it at this level, they do fall under a lot of reg- regulatory scrutiny. So, you know, they do have audits and process process systems, financial viability audits, et cetera. So, you know, you, to be an operator, to operate at this level, um, you have to be an organization that is best in class that does well and that operates, you know, a fundamentally sound business. So you've got an institutional quality uh, group of individuals and operators with an institutional level, a significant portfolio, attractive monthly payments, uh, hedge against the economy, and it's highly tax efficient. <laughs> um, so, so it's it's a it sounds like a pretty good opportunity, and I, I assume you would think so too, lo- ladies and gentlemen. Um, you can learn more about this uh, at wfvelocity.com. Daryl and I did uh, a presentation together, and you can check that out there. Again, that's wfvelocity.com. Daryl, I want to thank you um, very much for for giving us uh, your time today and explaining what I think is a you know particularly interesting investment given the time that we're in from an economic standpoint, from a volatility standpoint. Uh, from from even from uh, you know just the, the tax advantages that we have currently. So so thank you very much for uh, joining us. My pleasure. I enjoyed our time. Thank you as well. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I think it is a very interesting and exciting investment to consider. And if you'd like to learn more, go to wfvelocity.com. Again, that's WF as in Wealth Formula, velocity.com. You can watch the presentation that Daryl and I did. This is open only to accredited investors. It is a Reg D506C offering, uh, but check it out if you'd like to learn more. Uh, one thing I should point out is the returns themselves are, you know, obviously it's uh, it's it's definitely nice yield, right? It's it's the internal rate of return is pretty impressive, et cetera. But one thing I got to tell you is once you couple this with something like a wealth formula banking, uh, the numbers really start to go insane. So I'm going to have Rod and Christian uh, put together a pro forma for that as well and send that out as well to you. But in the meantime, if you already have a wealth formula banking policy, definitely talk to Rod and Christian about how you might be able to use it in conjunction with this kind of uh, kind of investment. Anyway, uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.